This episode is brought to you in part by Wholehearted Love, a new book by Caleb and Stephanie Rouse. Overcome the barriers that hold you back in your relationships with God and with others and delight in feeling safe, seen, and loved with Wholehearted Love. For more information, go to Tyndale.com. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Worth Your Time podcast, live, my new uh, my new thing that I'm doing. Um, I'm your host, Erica Anderson, and my guest today is Megan Westra. Thank you so much for joining me, Megan. Thank you so much for having me, Erica. I'm glad to be here. Not really sure why I like stumbled over your name just now, because it's not a hard name, but hey, we'll just <laughs> go with it. It um, happens more than you would think, to be I'm honest. Like, why am I second guessing myself? <laughs> Well, um, you are the author of a new book called Born Again and Again, Jesus' Radical Call to Transformation. So I want to talk a lot about that. But before we do, you are on the pastoral team at Transformation City Church in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. You have um, your MDiv, is that correct? MDiv, yes. Okay, okay. From Northern Seminary. And yeah, yeah. um, yeah. so tell us a little bit about yourself and where you grew up and just your life now. For sure. So, uh, yeah, I was on the team with Transformation City Church for 10 years. I recently transitioned and I'm working in uh, hospice now as a hospice chaplain, hmm. um, which is a very different uh, line of work, but it's really good and I'm really enjoying it. Um, and then I live in Milwaukee. I have lived in Milwaukee for 10 years with my husband and I have an eight year old uh, who's doing school in the next room. <laughs> yes, yes, totally. And uh, so we live in the Sherman Park neighborhood. I'm obsessed with my neighborhood. Uh, I love it so much. I graduated with my MDiv in June. I grew up in uh, the right on the West Virginia Virginia border, uh, so in the Appalachian Mountains. And uh, you know, I, I do I do miss the mountains. Uh huh. And it's very cold in Wisconsin. Yeah. Otherwise, I love it. <laughs> and. Yeah, I uh, I started writing about 10 years ago when I had first graduated from college because it was kind of as like blogs were becoming like a big deal. Mm-hmm. And that was just what like good Christian kids did when they graduated from college was they started blogs so <laughs> that they could like write about mm-hmm. like, here's all my marriage advice because I just got married. And so that's what you need to know. <laughs> yeah, that's always great. You're like, I don't think I'm going <laughs> to take your course, okay? Right, right. <laughs> I look back and I, I have uh, purged a number of those posts from my blog because I'm like, oh, that's cringy. Um, <laughs> but, you know, for better or worse, it got me writing. And I have since started writing about much different things um, and hopefully things that I can uh, say with a little bit more confidence uh, you know, I grew up uh, very evangelical, uh, like staunchly evangelical, and I have asked a lot of questions of my faith over the years um, throughout 10 years of pastoring and doing different like organization, uh, like organizational work in my community and things like that. And, and so as my faith shifted, I kind of wrote through those shifts and the book is kind of like a, a time capsule of 10 years of questions and wrestlings and grapplings and I really wanted to give people, uh, you know, if you're also asking those questions um, or maybe you're asking a different set of questions than you were a few years ago, uh, here's some like footholds to get you going. Like if you're on a rock wall, right? Like here are the things that you can launch yourself off of uh, or that were at least helpful for me to launch off of in, in my journey. Yeah, I think that's a really big theme that I've been picking up on and wanting to expand on in my own sort of. I don't really have a ministry, but my personal ministry that I do through writing. And yeah. and that is that it's okay to ask questions. And like, we should ask questions. And like, it's okay, but does it make sense? And it's okay if you're confused or you're like, I don't like that about God. Or, you know, mm-hmm. the, the thing that you learned in your past isn't necessarily the way that you always thought it was. And it doesn't have to be. And sort of just opening that conversation. I think we're seeing that a lot more now. Opening that conversation to like to be had and to not be scared of it. And yeah. um, I love that so much in what you're writing. Um, can you tell us about the title? I'm, I'm sure most people understand, but just just give us a little bit of background on how you came up with that. Yeah. So uh, a fun fact about books is that usually the authors don't title them, which true, is such true. a weird thing because it's like, you know, it's like having a baby, but you don't get to name it. Like, oh, so um, 
It's so sad. It's so sad. But uh, so I didn't come up with the title. The the publisher did. But the the idea behind it, right, is coming from a really evangelical background like I do, uh, being born again was a, a constant refrain in my childhood, right? Mm-hmm. Like I was invited to like get saved uh, three times a week for my whole life until I was yeah. like in my 20s. So this idea of like, constantly looking for this moment, like the religious communities I grew up in, there was this big narrative of like, if you can't tell me the day and the hour and the minute and what was going on in the room and what color shirt you were wearing and like all this stuff, when you got saved, when you were born again, then it's not real, right? Like it's such a profoundly life-changing moment that you should be able to tell me everything about that moment. Uh, And so I had a lot of anxiety as a kid and a teenager about like whether or not my faith was genuine because I was like, Oh, I don't, I don't, I don't know what that moment looks like. And, and so instead what this title does is it kind of flips that idea of saying like, it only happens one time you get born again once and that's it. And that's (laughs) the moment. And then you're good. And then you're in and it's, you know, and instead saying there is an ongoing aspect to our transformation, to our salvation uh, in one of the Pauline letters, I don't remember which letter it is. Paul wrote a lot of stuff, but he talks about working out your salvation with fear and trembling, right? This idea of like our salvation is, is a work. It's a thing that we are not that we're saved by works, saved by faith, but it is something that we give ourselves to It's a practice. Um, and so, uh, that's really what the title is, is getting at is this idea that like, well, yes, like, you're born again and then again and then again and then again. And every day uh, I am finding new ways in which I am not following Jesus as closely as I would like to be. If I'm being honest with myself every day, I'm finding ways in which, you know, this Holy spirit is, is leading and guiding me uh, that I wasn't aware of before. If I'm paying attention, right. If I'm mm-hmm. paying attention to this, then I'm finding ways every day, or at least, you know, throughout seasons of my life, if I look back, like at the overarching, you know, arc of a season of like, oh yeah, I didn't expect to find Christ there, but I did. Um, I didn't expect to see that ugly part of myself, that uh, yet unredeemed, yet unconformed part of myself, but but it's there. Um, And if we're going to be people who, you know, take up our cross daily, who seek to follow after Christ, uh, then that's an ongoing work, not a one-time decision. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it's reminds me of, well, because when I initially contacted you, I told you that I had been on a uh, summer project with Campus Crusade for Christ. Yes. And so I had I don't even, I had subscribed to Amy, it's Amy Sullivan's podcast, right? Is that? Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I had subscribed to her podcast, like, I don't know, a long time ago and she hadn't put out any episodes. And so when it popped up in my feed, I was like, who, what is this? Like, I don't (laughs) even know what this podcast is and I'm subscribed to it. And then I was like, oh, like, I think I know her from Twitter. Mm -hmm. And so I listened to the episode and you talked about, um, having been involved in Campus Crusade and well, I guess it's called crew now. Um, And um, doing a summer project, which I did. I went to Panama City Beach um, back a long time ago. I won't say what year. Um, but uh, but you had had uh, sort of a negative experience with their evangelism model there, which I don't know if it's the same today, but basically it requires you to like kind of check off numbers of like how yeah. many people can you go evangelize to on the beach today or whatever. Nice. And I'm pretty sure that staff um, had to do that as well. Like if you were on staff mm-hmm. for crew, you had to like, oh, you know, tally it up or whatever. And I was so uncomfortable with this. And yeah. I do remember there was one, one girl that I met that summer that I, you know, quote, led to Christ or whatever, shared the gospel with her, um, which was great and everything. But it was like, do I know her name today? Right. Uh, did yeah. I keep in touch with her? Did I go back? I just was like, oh, great. She's saved. See you later. You know, and that's mm-hmm. so much the mentality. Um, and, and that's and, and then that goes to the whole uh, you know, how there's been like a whole um, uproar over like, you know, what is missions and what are we right. doing with missions when helping hurts that whole concept. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so all that to say, I'm kind of rambling, but all that to say, I loved in the book where you talk about this historical 
um, role of Christianity. I, I did not know this. Like you talked about how it used to be a public faith. They used to do scripture readings and people are talking about it and debating and conversing. And then somewhere in modern American Christianity or Western Christianity, it became this very personal thing where it's just about you and just about your um, being saved. And it is about that, but like, it's, it's not just about that. So can you give us a little like history lesson on that and tell us, tell us a bit about it? Yeah, for sure. I, I'm glad that you like the history. I was such a, like, so opposed to history for so much of my life, which is so <laughs> embarrassing to admit now. But uh, my husband was a history major in college. And I remember just being like, oh, my gosh, it's so boring. <laughs> and then starting to realize, like, as I asked these questions about my faith, I had a lot of anxiety about it because I was like, oh, my gosh, I felt like I was questioning God or questioning like scripture. And what really was happening was I was questioning some iterations of church history, mostly ones that are really recent, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, evangelicalism as a movement. And as we know it uh, in the United States, like the the way that we think about evangelicals in the United States right now, really only been a part of Christian history for about 150 years. And that's generous. Um, And so when I started to realize that, that like this idea of like, Uh, professing Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior and being able to name the day and the moment that you made that decision, uh, that's that's not a part of the whole trajectory of the Christian faith. Uh, When I started realizing that faith being a very private matter, right, that we don't don't discuss religion or politics, uh, Mm -hmm. that that was just like asinine for a lot of Christian history, Uh, And even within the United States that we have witnesses, um, particularly if you look at like the black church, if you look at, um, you know, even like the the temperance movement, uh, which was, you know, spearheaded by a lot of women where people are saying, no, like our faith compels us to take this public action. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, And evangelicals do that, too, in their own way. They don't always like to frame it that way. And they're very selective in how they frame it. Um, but our faith, it, it matters in our public work. Uh, you know, the, the reality is Jesus was executed by the state. And so we have to grapple with that then as people who profess uh, to follow someone who's the victim of state sanctioned execution, right? Like if we're saying mm-hmm. Jesus is Lord and Jesus was executed by the state, then we have to grapple then with what our space is in public life and how we orient ourselves to power. And toward the way that our our public life is shared and constructed together. And so, uh, you know, as I started to pull apart that history and, and start to look at like, okay, when did these shifts occur? When did these shifts toward faith being a private matter occur? And why? Right. That's such an important question is not just when did this happen, but why did it happen? And seeing over and over again that like so many of the times and instances when in the United States, there was this decision made for a more private faith. It was often to enshrine some sort of oppressive system, whether it was, uh, you know, I talk in the book about uh, the shift in English common law um, in the colonies to allow for the enslavement of other Christians, um, thus paving the way for chattel slavery in the United States and things like that. I have no interest in holding beliefs that, were constructed to create space for things like that. And that I can look at scripture and I can look at the history and the tradition and say, okay, I want to hold to a a broader and a deeper tradition that would have said, no, there's no space for that. Instead of a recent uh, upcropping in the last couple hundred years that says, oh no, we can, we can make this private uh, exception. Mm -hmm. So, Yeah. 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 I mean, I think it's just, it's interesting how, some of it parallels with like political um, changes as well. Like just the, I'm not against individualism, you know, uh, right. but, but it, you know, it's, it's sort of like faith became individual and then, and then, then policy becomes more individual. And then, right. you know, it's kind of like people aren't thinking, I guess, holistically about how everything mm-hmm. works together because it all does work together and, and it can't mm-hmm. be separated. Um, so I think it's important for people to understand that history because so many times we're sitting here in 2020 and we're forgetting like 
how young our country is, how long or how young we are in the span of eternity. And like, I was just reading this book that was like, it was like a, you know, a very brief history of like the past, I don't know, a couple thousand years of Christianity. Mm -hmm. And um, I was just kind of fascinated because I was like, oh, like we are not it. Like no. there is stuff happening right now and we don't know how people are going to look back at us in a thousand years and say the Christianity of 2000, of the 2000s. Like what was that iteration? And, and to mm -hmm. just live in the understanding that we do not understand it all. And that mm -hmm. um, this concept of, oh, I wish I could, there's a great quote about something like, if you think you know, uh, it's something about if you think you know God or you think you under, fully understand the Bible or something like you definitely don't. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. Because like we shouldn't fully understand and we should always be questioning and we should always be considering. And um, anyway, so I just thought that was just so thought provoking um, what you wrote about in your book about the history and, and something that people should really pay attention to, because if you're just living in the now, you really miss like the entire scope and context of of the full conversation. Yeah. yeah. Um, and one of the things I say is that, you know, that the individualism or like the individual view of salvation or, or of our place in history, it's not that it's wrong. It's just incomplete. Like mm -hmm, we just right. need to ask more questions um, and we need to have a broader scope of what we're considering. Um, so I, I don't ever want people to hear like that the particularity and their individual circumstances don't matter. Mm -hmm. uh, I want them to think bigger though. And I want them to, to expand the horizon. Yeah. And the other thing you mentioned was that God in the Bible, he's always talking about his people. Yeah. He's always talking about, you know, like the Israelites, he's always talking about his people. He's never not, he, of course he cares about us as individuals, but like, you know, when you're thinking about you know, so many people today, um, you know, it, it's not, it's like people have stopped going to church and um, stopped being in community. People are disillusioned by, you know, bad experiences they've had at church and things like that. And, and faith has become a more individualistic thing. It's become a more quote, spiritual thing. People like to say they're spiritual, but not religious. And yet God um, is consistently referring to his people in the Bible. Um, can you talk a little bit about, you know, what you wrote about that aspect of things? Yeah. So I think that Yes. Like we have to hold in mind that in scripture, God is always or constantly referring to God's people and calling people into uh, becoming a, a people gathered for the the witness and the name and the glory of God. And, you know, if, if we look at the gospels, we listen to Jesus, like Jesus is really reforming and remaking what we think of as as family, too. Uh, you know, that his mother and his brothers come to essentially collect him like right, like okay, this is, this is get a little weird. Like we need to like bring you in a little bit. And he, he responds with, well, who is my mother and who are my brothers and sisters? And it, it's the people that do the will of God. And it's the people who are, who are kind of with me in this. Right. Uh, and then you see that also throughout the rest of the new Testament. So many of the writings that, that Paul has about family codes and household codes and things like that. If you put them in the context of what was going on in the Roman Empire? It, it really is this reimagining of like, who do we belong to? And the answer is, we belong to one another in Christ. The grace of God draws us together as as people, and and so for so long, you know, again in this you know kind of evangelical thrust in the United States, we've had this idea of you go to a church, right? Like you go and you sit down and you listen to someone give a sermon, you stand up and you sing songs. And it's almost like church is an event mm -hmm. uh, that you attend instead right. of a people to whom you belong. And I think that that's a really, you know, being in this moment where so many congregations are still gathering over Zoom or where people are finding different ways to connect with people in mutual support. Um, that is, you know, can be driven by their faith, can be driven by like real practical, like, hey, I need dinner this week, uh, things. I think it's a really interesting moment to reimagine what does it mean to say as people, this is what it looks like to belong to one another and to love our neighbors as ourselves and to engage in this work that Christ in invites us to. Um, because I don't have any interest in showing up for an event uh, that is going to just be like a lot of emotional hype, but I have a whole lot of interest in being part of the people of God 
And I think that we have a lot of space to reimagine what that looks like um, and how we come alongside one another in, in solidarity and support because yeah, people are disillusioned with church and people have good reasons to do so. And I say that as somebody who deeply loves the church, mm-hmm. uh, that, you know, there are so many instances in which people feel like if they are struggling with something or they're going through a hard season, that the church is the last place they want to bring that or to have people know about it. And that should give us immense pause uh, as people who are, are you know, who deeply value church. Um, that like, what does that say about the state of how we have imagined what it means to be people gathered for God um, and for, uh, for to be following Jesus together if we're the last place people want to come uh, if they are having a, a difficult time or if they're walking through a season in which they're struggling or something like that. Um, we should be the first place where people feel safe. And that's just not true right now. Um, and so I'm I'm really curious to see how this particular season invites us to reconsider what does it mean to be a people gathered um, in following Jesus together and discerning the Holy Spirit with one another um, in in acting in ways that uh, that join God in creating a new world. Um, so I, I think that there's a lot of opportunity. Uh, but we have to be willing to to reimagine things. Yeah, I think um, more churches need to be thinking along those lines. And um, you know, I've uh, in my life I've been a part of various different support support groups for whatever you know issues. We won't have to get into those right now. But um, but when what I when I go to those, I always think like, man, someone shouldn't have to have an addiction or an eating disorder mm-hmm. or you know be suicidal to have this place where they can dump their soul on the ground and be loved right. for who they are. And I want church to be that place. Yeah. And I think there are churches that are that place. I mean, it sounds like your church is, is probably a place like that. Um, I feel like my church is, is I hope that people feel that it is a place like that. It's a little, of course, it's all weird right now because of COVID, right. but but that is what I strive for and hope for, for the church that people can walk in in all of their mess. And it's not an event because if it is an event, right. then yeah, like you have to like get ready and like you mm-hmm. have to be like performing when you're there. And why would you want to do that? And I use my, I, I use my husband as an example for so many things. So sorry if you're watching this, Rick, but, um, <laughs> but I, I like, I like to use him as an example in this regard because, you know, when we first started going to our church, he, you know, he was just, he was, it was an event for him. Like we went, you know, we went and we left, we went and we left. Um, And ultimately though, a few years ago, he started volunteering and he, you know, does set up and he is now teaching the middle schoolers and he's extremely involved. And, and it's no longer like I can skip out on this. It's no longer like, um, you know, just something I go to. It's like, he really cares about the people that he sets up with. He's sending them texts. Like he is checking in on people and people are checking in on us. Um, And and so that's a different kind of experience. Like you can't just stop showing up if you're in that kind of a church where people really are like, well, where were you? You know, I want to know where you were. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I feel like we're seeing more of that lately. Like I, I've gotten really into the idea of church planting in the past couple of years, just sort of learning about it and he, you know stuff I'd never knew before. Um, do you feel like you're seeing more churches that are are heading in the right direction? That's a really difficult question to answer because you know, having been a pastor for ten years, I am very aware that there's a lot of tension in a lot of churches between what. Uh, pastors or leaders in churches see as needed, what people in congregations are looking for. Uh, you know, there there is some generational gaps between what people want to preserve, uh, who maybe have a very traditional view of, of the way church services should go, uh, versus, you know, how creative we want to get with things. I, I think that right now it's a difficult moment to say exactly how the trajectory is going to look as we uh, work our way through this pandemic and look ahead to what's to come. I think in my best moments when I'm feeling optimistic, right, then I, I'm like, yeah, no, I think that we're asking better questions of one another right now. I think 
because, you know, depending on where you're at in, in the U.S., you're living through, you know, varying degrees of, uh, of difficulty. I'm in Wisconsin. We're a hot spot right now. Uh, and so people are checking in more and people are more willing to say like, hey, like, do you need me to grab groceries for you this week and things like that? Uh, you know, I think that those are all really good things that we're not just caring about uh, whether people are showing up on a Sunday morning, but we, we're really caring about if their embodied life is okay, right? Like, mm -hmm. do you have food? Do you have somebody to watch your kids while they do virtual school? Um, you know, hey, you live alone. Like, are do you have anybody who's talking to you on a regular basis? You know, can I come sit 10 feet apart from you in your yard and, mm -hmm. you know, talk and things like that? And those are all really good things. Uh, I think that if we can continue to ask those kinds of questions and say that our shared life together as people of God uh, should affect our our daily lives and our rhythms and what who we consider our family, who we consider, uh, you know, kind of the people that we that we go through life together and things like that with, um, you know, I think that if we can continue to ask those questions, it will be on a, a much better trajectory. I also think that there are a lot of pressures for sameness in in churches and in congregations. Um, people tend to not like change. People mm -hmm. tend to not like, uh, you know, in theory, we like to be creative and innovative. Uh, in practice, it's more difficult. I think that we are willing to ask questions to a point. And then when it comes to actually enacting the results of those wonderings, it can get a little more sticky. Uh, but on my best days, I'm optimistic. How big is your church? Um, so the church that I was uh, was pastoring at when I wrote the book and, um, you know, that I talk about in the book is like around 100 people. Mm -hmm. Um so it's a smaller congregation. I currently attend another small congregation in, in my neighborhood. Um, I, I do think that smaller congregations have an advantage. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I, I fully acknowledge my own bias in that. Yeah, I mean, I have, uh, that, I have that same bias. So I agree yeah. with you on that. But I think that if we're if we're seeing and I talk a lot in the book about how uh, as as the movie Moana so beautifully put it. <laughs> The people you love will change you. And mm -hmm. I think that that's so much a part of the Christian life at its mm -hmm. best is that mm -hmm. when I am in community with people, when I have, uh, you know, committed to living my life with these people and to building a community of faith with them and uh, to taking care of one another, to mutually support one another, things like that. That's difficult to do on a on a really large scale, like relationally, you just only have so much capacity. And so I think that, you know, I have encountered people and have been shaped by them and changed by them because I have been able to be in a smaller community. Um, and because then I, I, there, I don't just stay in my cluster of everybody that's just like me. I, you know, it's a small enough group that I'm like, oh, I, I kind of know everybody and that person's not like me. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and so that challenges then my assumptions about life and about the world and how God works and who God works through and uh, what the conviction or the comfort of the Holy Spirit sounds like and things like that. So um, I, I definitely have a little bit of a small church bias, but only because that is that has been a really powerful and good experience for me. Did you begin working in ministry after sort of your shift, your kind of faith political shift or during or before? I took my first job in ministry pretty much right out of college. And I had started to ask some questions at that point. I worked at a nonprofit all through college, which I talk about some in the book. Um, and that kind of brought a few questions to the surface, uh, similar to like things that you were mentioning earlier with like when helping hurts and like some mm -hmm. of that reimagining missions and stuff and saying like, okay, well, what, it, you know, I, I don't know if things are really where they need to be if we are struggling to figure out how poor people fit into our community or yeah, yeah. if we are, you know, like my experience that I write about with, uh, 
with my summer project with crew was like, don't invite the homeless people to dinner. And I was like, well, that sounds seems weird. That seems strange. That, that doesn't seem like <laughs> that doesn't seem to, like Jesus. <laughs> right. That that seems out of alignment with the Bible. Um, <laughs> this episode is brought to you in part by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries, which prepares Christian women for leadership. At Bow, we believe that every woman is a leader because she influences someone. So whom do you influence? Do you mentor a woman, serve in the workplace, or do you lead a small group, teach the Bible, or even lead an entire ministry? No matter who or how many you influence, our free online resources will help equip you. Our videos, podcast episodes, and articles from experienced women leaders will encourage you and perfect your leadership skills. They offer wisdom for dealing with ministry pitfalls, current biblical issues, health for your own soul, and insights for shepherding others well. In addition, BOW offers Bible studies designed to connect women of multiple generations. They provide a challenge to both women new to the Bible and those wanting to dig deeper. Be our guest and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies at beyondordinarywomen.org. So, you know, there were certain questions I had started asking when I started working in ministry full-time. I started asking a lot more questions and I'm really, really grateful that I was in a community that held those well and walked alongside me as I grappled with things. And, you know, that I had a, a lead pastor that I was working with at that time who wasn't like, Shh, stop, like, no, don't ask that question. But it was just like, mm, that's a good question. And now you should ask this one too. And then you should ask this one too. And here's a bunch of books you should read and really encouraged me in that that journey. And I don't take that lightly because I know for so many people, when they start to ask questions, they lose their communities uh, or they have to keep it very quiet because their community isn't willing to tolerate that. And you know, I use the phrase in the book of like, I had a, a fragile faith that couldn't bear the, the weight of those questions. Mm -hmm. And I think that when we are in systems where people just have fragile faith, then it's not just a question of, you know, individuals being threatened by your questions. It's really the, the whole system can't bear up under the weight of those questions. And so, again, there's this tension between the individual and the corporate, the individual right. and the collective. And I think that if we can learn to hold one another well during our questions, if we can learn to not say, oh, no, you shouldn't ask that, but instead say, okay, and what's the next question? Like, what's the, what's the, what's the thing behind the thing? What's the why that we need to be asking here? Uh, and if we can, you know, build our, our faith muscle to support that and to hold that and, and really to allow that flexibility to say, we, we don't need this to be resolved at the end of a 45 minute yeah. sermon or a six week small group study, right? Like these are questions that we have been wrestling with of, as people of faith for thousands of years. And so, you know, in some regards, it's like, well, how dare we think we can figure it out in a six to eight week Bible study right? Uh, when literally we've been having this conversation for <laughs> thousands of years. So, you know, I think that, yeah, I, I, I feel so grateful for the people who helped me while well during my questions. And I hope that, you know, if we were to have this conversation again in 10 years, that I would continue to be able to say there are people who have held my questions well. Uh, I, when I first started really trying to dig through things, I just wanted to find the answers. I just wanted to find the right way to think about things. And more and more, I think I have more of a posture of saying that, like, I, I understand things as well as I can today mm -hmm. and I'm going to act accordingly. And in the future, I will hopefully understand things better. Uh, I don't have any interest in arriving. Yeah. Um, I want to stay curious and and very much like live into the like, uh, you know, the truth that Maya Angelou gave us, right? That like when we know better, we do better. And uh, and I constantly want to be knowing better and knowing more. Yeah, I mean, I think a couple of thoughts came to mind. One is, um, you know, a friend of mine has like really wrestled with her faith somewhat recently, and 
you know, it's it's hard. It's hard to have those conversations sometimes when when they don't really want to talk about it. But anyway, mm -hmm. I, I just I felt God like prompting me one day to to send a text that just said uh, God can handle all of your questions. And I think mm -hmm. that's really reassuring just to know that like it doesn't you know, like like he can like he's he's big enough. He can handle all the questions, like ask mm -hmm. all the questions and it's mm -hmm. OK. And if we are just pursuing those like faithfully and, you know, reading scripture and talking with others. And maybe someone tells us our conclusion or where we're heading is the wrong direction. But if we are doing that with a, with a pure heart, like it doesn't matter if we end up wrong because we, we were, we were pursuing it, um, you know, in that manner. And in God's going to, I think God will honor that um, pursuit. Um, the other thing that came to mind is just that, you know, I think a lot of people do have like a negative church history, like they've had um, hurt by the church or they don't like the church they used to go to and they've gotten out of it. And so I just love this phrase that I always harp on is like the church of your past doesn't have to be the church of your future. And you wrote a, a very similar line to that in your book, something about like your past doesn't have to be your future or something like that. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I just think that's such an important thing to remember. I think so many times people don't even realize that there is a different way, like especially if they come from, say, a Catholic background or they come from, you know, just any denomination that you come from that you're used to. Like, it's scary to try something new, um, yeah. but there there could be something different. I mean, you uh, went to, I assume, like a conservative evangelical church growing up and and, you know, now how would you say, you know, your church is now compared to that? Uh, well, now my church is on a computer screen. Well, yeah. <laughs> yes, as so many uh, are. Yeah, no, but I, I attend, uh, I currently attend a, a United Church of Christ congregation, which is uh, a little bit more liturgical, but not not totally. I, I'm really grateful because I did my primary, like my church home growing up, right, was a more conservative evangelical church. Uh, we attended a Southern Baptist church for a lot of my formative years. And my great grandparents helped found a United Methodist church that we attended for a few years during my childhood. Uh, so I remember that I have memories of that. Uh, my aunt and uncle are members of a Pentecostal church. And so I remember visiting them and going to this like really charismatic church that I was like, this is so different from my Baptist church. <laughs> yes. And there were drums and there was dancing and there, you know, all the things that we didn't have. Um, and so I remember that and I've held on to that. You know, a few years ago, I went with an Episcopal friend to Easter vigil at their congregation and there were candles and there were bells and there were like, and I was just like, this is so multi-sensory and incredible. And I just like wept the whole time. Cause I was just like, this is so like, it just hit me all like at different angles because I hadn't ever encountered the resurrection narratives with that much like sensory input going mm -hmm, on. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's, there is such a gift and in just like turning the gym, that's a father, Richard Rohr uh, mm -hmm. uses that analogy a lot in his writings and in his work of just like, how do we just turn the gym and let the light hit it a little bit differently? Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, for me, growing up in more conservative evangelical spaces and in predominantly like Baptist congregations, uh, you know, encountering the way that that Christ is is proclaimed and that the gospel is taught in in Episcopal services or through uh, the work of the Catholic parish in my neighborhood and things like that. Like it, it has turned and put the light on it a little bit differently. And, uh, you know, for people who are coming from these more liturgical or um, traditional backgrounds, you know, they can show up at a, a non-denominational service uh, and be like, whoa, this is really different. And so I think that, you know, just a little more curiosity can go so far. Yes. And in, in Stay curious. Our... I know that's like a commonly oh my used gosh. phrase, but it's so good. It's so good. And, and, you know, it, it, it's a risk. Like there's some vulnerability required in that. And I don't know if we always talk about that because it's like, yeah, stay curious. And it sounds like this really like exciting, adventurous thing, but like in order to stay curious, you also have to be willing to be confronted with the areas of life in which you haven't considered before and that you may be wrong about or you may need to have more nuanced opinions about and 
at least that's been my experience about staying curious. And there was a season of my life where, like I said, I was just, I, I just wanted the answers so bad. Uh, I knew the answers that I had were insufficient and they, they didn't fully address the complexity of life. And so I just wanted that correct set of answers. I just wanted that correct set of practices. Uh, I just wanted to know like, you know, what's the lane I need to stay in? And then I will stay in that lane. And what I found as I stayed curious was that was the wrong set of questions to mm -hmm. be asking. That was the wrong set of expectations to be putting on uh, on myself and on God in some ways. Like, okay, God, like, please just download all your wisdom into like little old me uh, and make me able to understand the the whole of the cosmos in my little finite life. Like what? Mm -hmm. uh, just such a, you know, an arrogant position in some ways. And so to stay curious meant that and means that I have had to relinquish my deeply held love and desire to be right. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that is a, like when I think about like die to yourself daily, I'm like, oh, that that's it. That's that's the piece I have to die to because I so desperately want to be right to know that I'm making the the good choice, the ethical choice, the like that I'm doing the right thing. And and really all I can know for sure is that I'm doing the best that I can in that moment in my best moments. Mm -hmm. um, and, and then there are also times where I like look back and I'm like, oh, no, that was. That was not my best moment. That was not my best moment. <laughs> I was definitely being petty. Um, and that was not necessary. That was not a great look, Westra. But we all have those moments too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think one other thing I would just add is that sometimes, you know, you said, mentioned getting in the lane. And then sometimes there are people where people, you know, there are certain individuals that people look to as like, okay, well, they're going to have, I want to know their right. perspective on this. So then I can yeah. make my perspective on this. And I, I fall yeah. into that too, because there are people that I respect that are out there that are like sort of, mm -hmm. I guess, opinion leaders. And um, I do that, but I, I've, I've caught myself to say like, okay, like that's cool. But like, make sure that you are getting the other side of this too. And yeah. like understanding where the people it's, it's like, I think you should always just look to the people with the best of intentions and get what they're um, saying, because, you know, that's where you're going to find sort of like the, um, the essence of that. And then you can form your own opinion. But mm -hmm. um, I think it's, it's so important to just be thoughtful. Don't, don't be lazy about really thinking things through. And, um, you know, if you're, I'm not the kind of person that's extremely certain about my opinion on most things, um, which is why I could never be like a radio talk show host or, you know, on one of those panels on CNN. Like I look at people like, how are you so sure that it's exactly that way? Like, I don't have that and I don't want to have that. Like, I'm glad I don't have that. Um, and so I think it's just always good to be questioning. So that's, that's such a good point. Okay. So there's one other thing I wanted to um, to ask you about because I really just resonated with it and it's sort of like not related to the rest of the conversation, but um, you talked about the heartbreaking idol of marriage growing up in the mm. church. And um, we've heard a lot like, you know, oh, the church makes being a wife and a mother like the, the highest calling. We've heard that a lot. And I don't know that that was necessarily told to me as it's the quote highest calling, but I grew up in the church and somehow by the age of 17, I was obsessed with getting married and mm -hmm. I like thought I, I was 17 and I was like stressing out about <laughs> getting married. I mean, yeah. that's ridiculous. Uh -huh. I look back at myself and I'm like, <laughs> what is wrong with you? I'm like, okay, yeah. you're going to go to college and you're like going to have that college romance. You're going to meet, you know, your husband, then you're going to have kids. And then, oh my gosh, if I don't have kids by the time I'm 30, like life will be over. Mm -hmm. And you know, that was not my path at all. I def I got married at, you know, 31 and that's totally fine. Like I've had a perfectly fine life, mm -hmm. but I spent many years obsessing over it. And, you know, they, they tell you to pray for your husband when you're like 15. It's like, why are we praying <laughs> for our husband? Like, we don't, we don't even know if we have a husband. And right. so I, now that I have a daughter, I am like, I do not want her to be like me. I don't right. want her yep. thinking about that. I don't want her caring about that. I want her to get married if that's the right thing, of course. Mm -hmm. But like, I don't want it to be a thing for her. Like, I want mm -hmm. her to be strong and confident and independent in herself. And marriage is like, sure, if it happens, fine. 
Um, and so I'm not really sure necessarily how I'm going to um, do that. She's only two, <laughs> but um, <laughs> you know, I'm thinking about it. So, so yeah. give me a, your thoughts on that. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I'm, I'm so grateful. Uh, so the way the book is structured for people who haven't read it yet is uh, because of the, the people who love will change you uh, Moana vibe that I, uh, you know, fold in, I invited friends to contribute their, their thoughts. So some of these people, right. Who have been in my life, who have loved me well, who I have loved, uh, who have changed my perspectives on things. Uh, I wanted them to share with my readers in their own words. Like this is, this is how I see this. And so I'm so grateful, uh, in that section that, um, Holly Stalkup, um, of now she rises, you know, contributed her thoughts on this uh, as a single woman in the church, uh, because there is this, I think, especially for women, but just overall, there's just such this, there's such a weight put on, you have to get married. You have to get married. It is your highest calling or, or certainly like a uh, way up there on the list. Yes, if not important. the highest, it's real important. You have to do this. I think if you just look at what are the programs being run by churches? Um, like who are the small groups? Who are the things like that? Like uh, I, you know, I have spoken at like mops groups, like that's mothers of preschoolers. And there's not a, in most congregations, there's not a like group that is like, we are nurses. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, there's not the same attention given to uh, other markers of like life affinity. But yeah. there is for like young married couples, young parents, uh, even singles groups in churches tend to be more focused on how do we pair these people up? Like, right. oh, good. We have all the singles in the yes. room. Let's match make them. And I again, like not to just be like a huge Bible nerd, uh, but that's my background is being a big Bible nerd. Uh, you know, if we look at the witness in particularly the New Testament this this reforming of family and of household is built around your relationship to Christ and is built around uh, being the people of God, not around you should really try to get married. Um, yeah. You know, Paul, you know, views marriage almost more as like a concession, right? Like if you have to do this, but it's better if you remain unmarried. I don't know if I've ever heard a, a pass or a sermon, a pastor give a sermon on that passage that's like, actually, it'd be great if everybody stayed single. But mm -hmm. if you really need to get married, I guess it's okay. Right? Yeah. Like you yeah. don't hear that from pulpits. <laughs> it's not yeah. something people preach on. And so I think that, you know, we would all be, we would all benefit from taking a little bit of that pressure off, whether that's for our, our kids. Um, I also have a daughter, she's eight. Um, you know, in the book, I talk a lot about how in many, many ways her birth was very much a catalytic moment for me of saying like, oh, no, like it's kind of like what you were just saying, like, I I'm not going to hand her that story. I don't want mm -hmm. her at age 15, you know, journaling prayers to her future husband. Like, oh, my gosh. No, no, I don't. I don't want that for her. I don't think that that served me well um, in my life. And I think that we would all just be better off if we said, okay, we are called to love one another as family because God is creating a, a new people, a new people who are gathered together, who are covenanted together, uh, who are, you know, to be mutually loving and supportive of one another as Christ has loved us. And we place so much emphasis on marriage and on family. And it's, again, I think about like, if I built a like Lego tower, right? Like if I used my daughter's Legos and I built this big Lego tower and then I was like, this is going to hold up our dining room table. And it's going to be the thing that we eat off of every night. That's like, that's a, that's a cool idea. And I guess if I were like a Lego master, then conceivably I could construct it in such a way that that would serve us well. I'm not a Lego master though. <laughs> and so it probably would, you know, even if I built it as strong as I could, they're Legos. They're not meant to hold up a dining room table. And mm -hmm. I think we have looked at marriage and family and said, 
this is where you get all your relational satisfaction. This is where you get all of your love and support. This is where you get all of the like mutual uh, encouragement and love that you need in life. And like your friends are like, that's cool if you have space. Yeah. Uh, but family is everything. And and usually, especially when people who are white use that phrase, they mean their nuclear family. And I, we just aren't served well by that. Uh, I love my spouse and I love my daughter. And also, if I'm looking to them to fulfill all of my needs, all of my relational needs, all of my uh, life aspirations and goals – like that's that's an unfair burden to place on them. It's yeah. it's building a Lego table or a dining room table out of Legos. And and Legos are awesome. They're great, but they need to be what they are for yeah. and not be the whole thing. And and so, you know, that's just you know, as somebody who who does check all those boxes, right? As like I am married and I am a mom. Um you know, our, my life is incomplete if I am not also in relationship with people who are outside of my family and outside of my household. Um, I am worse off for that. Um, and, and I know that when we, as a, as a body of believers, as an assembled people of God are constantly putting this focus on one group, one subset of people and saying this is when you have arrived, mm-hmm. uh, implicitly or explicitly, right? If if we're not saying it directly, then just the sheer amount of em- uh, emphasis that that group is getting is saying like, hey, this is what this is what the goal is. This is what you know you'll really make it when you're here, mm-hmm. uh, and that just causes a lot of harm because it's not the path that is for everybody. Uh, it's not the path everybody wants. Yeah. Um, and so I think that we need to really expand our imagination for what it means to be the people of God, um, to be family in Christ, to be siblings in Christ, uh, so that my idea of family is not just me and the two other humans that live in my house, but uh, that, that you are my sister because we because Christ is our elder brother, as the mm-hmm. author of Hebrews talks about, right? Um, and, and then I take that seriously, um, you know, that, that we view our commitment to one another as, as followers of Christ, as the first defining characteristic of our lives, not my family first. Um, yeah. And it, I, I was just going to say, I, um, I just finished reading the old Testament for the first time, um, like yesterday. <laughs> so okay. big, big accomplishment. Um, yeah. and, um, what I noticed, and this is probably sounds really lame to you who is like, a, like you said, you said you're a Bible nerd. Um, but I, I never realized before, like just how much the old Testament is focused on justice and, um, just that call out for widows, orphans, foreigners, and, and the impoverished. And so those first three, um, categories, like those are people that don't have family. And, Mm -hmm. um, if you are focused so much, if the church is focused, if you are focused so much on your family, your nuclear family, um, there is not, you're not uh, making space for those people that God is that is are so important to God. The God has made made uh, made a point to call out like, I wish I knew how many times I was trying to figure out like, did any has anyone like calculated how many times he he says these? Oh, four, I'm four sure that people. somebody has. <laughs> I know, I know, I couldn't find it. So if anybody if anybody's listening and and you know where it is, but I just thought like that should be top of mind right. um, because it's, yeah. think about it, it's not about your nuclear family at all in the Bible or to Jesus. It's like, leave your family and follow me. Correct. Yeah. And not that we're saying leave your family, but like, it is not about that. It's about mm-hmm. all of these other people. Um, you know, the first shall be last and the last shall be first type of thing. And uh, so I think that's such a a really important, critical point that I, yeah, I see the church is really missing that in some ways. Mm-hmm. And not just that we are you know, constantly saying like, oh, we need to be caring about the orphan, the widow, the the stranger, you know, 
that we also see, like Matthew 25 points out, that that's where Jesus is, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I don't need to have my eyes open to the people who are, you know, not at the center of this. So in this instance, you know, the people who are without, you know, traditional nuclear family as we think about it. Because then that makes me like a, well, then I'm paying attention to what God cares about. That's where God is, right? Like that's yeah. where Jesus is. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's like my life, I, I am at a detriment. I am less likely to see where God is working if I am focused on this instead of where Jesus says he actually is. <laughs> and mm -hmm. so um, for me, that was a big shift was realizing that this isn't just something I need to care about because God says he cares about it too. But that I realized that like, oh, no, I am I'm actively missing it mm -hmm. yeah. because this is these are the people, these are the life circumstances. This is the space in which Jesus identifies himself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and the people I feel like through which he really does the most, you know, to 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 show who he is to the world. I mean, if you look yeah. at the Bible stories, like look at all of those people. Yeah. There are many of those people in those in those groups that that he mentions there. Yeah. Um, OK, so we're getting to the end. But before you go, I've got to ask you what you've been reading or watching or listening to. Recommendations are always welcome. Yeah. So I, I graduated from seminary in June. And so I have been on a major fiction kick ever since yeah, like, um, no more nonfiction. oh my gosh like i'm starting to like get my way back into it but i've been reading so much fiction um i have currently been reading the percy jackson and the olympians books which is like young adult fiction but my daughter's yeah. reading them right now and so she was like mom you should read these too and so uh we've been reading through those uh, and that's been really fun uh i didn't read those as a kid and so i've i've been been enjoying that uh, and just the little bit of like levity that 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 brings. I also just picked up um, the book Hyperbole and a Half by Ali Bosch. Mm. Um, she just so it's a comic. It's an online comic. Right. Um, and she just had a new book that came out. And so I'm reading her first book again to just to. Remember. Yes, I remember <laughs> Hyperbole and a Half like from a long yeah. time ago. I remember it was yeah. so good. Yeah. 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 So it was like, I mean, the book is like 10 years old, I think. But um I'm on the waiting list at the library for her new book that <laughs> just released. And so I got the first one uh, and it's, it's still just as funny as it was before. So uh, I've been reading those things and then I have been watching um, a lot of Parks and Rec. I've been mm. going back through Parks and Rec. Not a bad um, idea. It's always a good plan. Always a good plan. And so watching that and listening to, uh, I've been listening to pantsuit politics mm -hmm. like my life depends on really? it. Um, because they just are helping me stay so grounded right yeah. now. Uh so I've been listening to a lot of that. I've been listening to um a lot of Taylor Swift's folklore. I'm still not mm. over it. It's been out for a few so months. Good. So good. Still very much on repeat. Um, <laughs> and then also listening to uh listening to a lot of Radio Lab, which I know is also very oh. like normal, like that's a very popular podcast. But just in these moments uh, where there does seem to be like just there's so much going on and there's so much uh, that is fractured. And so between Radiolab and that's the other thing I've been watching is one of the Radiolab hosts, Latif Nasser, has a Netflix special now, too, called Connected. And it's like the hidden oh. science behind everything. Oh, interesting. And and so I'm so, so thankful for these like quirky nerdy like scientific reports of just like here's the story behind behind like this thing and like seeing the different ways that that there is connection like built mm -hmm. into to everything and there is connection and interdependence built into the world um and trying to look for that as like a way to stay grounded in the midst of everything as i try to like press in on things that i would like to see shifted and try to call out things that I feel like need to be said and listen when I don't know what to do and, and all of the things that we are trying to practice right now. Right. Um, and so those, those like looking at like, how do colonies of ants function? It's been like <laughs> oddly grounding of just like, no, okay. I get that. Sometimes you need to get out of the 
muck of like culture wars mm -hmm. and stuff like that. And like, yeah. like, okay, there are other things happening. Like other, yes. like ants are still making colonies. Like yeah. there's still like rivers running and things like that. So mm -hmm. um, totally, totally with you on that. Okay, Megan, well, thank you so much for coming on today and sharing your book. Oh, I never held it up. Here it is guys. <laughs> Buy it. It's so good. It's such a good book. I totally recommend it. I'm going to, and I did, I put an Amazon review today. So hopefully that Oh, thank know. you. Puts it in someone's feed <laughs> on Amazon. Yes. No, I'm so close. I'm like just shy of 50 reviews. Oh, yeah. That's, yes. like, that's the mark. You know, I've, it's so, you're like, it's not that hard. Like, just just go write a sentence like to people that you know you're like you're you're i'm like mom come on <laughs> you know but it's yeah it takes a lot of effort to get those reviews for sure yeah 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 so thank you all right well i hope to stay in touch and um talk to you again soon yeah thanks so much have a good day